Well, we are in Daniel 9, and we're picking up the latter part of this chapter because it would have taken us way too long to take care of the whole chapter just last week. So we're starting at verse 20 today, and this one gets pretty exciting. And I got to tell you, I get pretty geeked about some of the things that I'm going to reveal to you today because they're so basic, and when you see them, it makes sense. It's like everything becomes in living color. It becomes three-dimensional and it leaps off the page at you. So buckle your seat belts because we got a lot to cover, but it's exciting stuff. We're gonna look at this good news, bad news message as Gabriel answers Daniel, just as he is praying this heartfelt prayer that we looked at last week. And he starts talking about this thing that's gonna help us get a grip on what he meant by the quote 70 weeks. Seems like it's all Hebrew to me until we start getting into the exegetical tools that we have at our disposal. And I'll tell you what those tools are so we can see much more clearly what this means for us. So last week, we looked at Daniel's prayer for Jerusalem. We saw his contrite heart. We saw that he was basically begging God to fulfill what God had promised for Israel's future because he knew that they had been in exile and that 70 years was almost up. And so Daniel was basically saying, God, come on, do what you said you were going to do, okay? And then Gabriel shows up, and that's where we get to dive in today, and we're going to look at the 70 weeks in verses 20 through 27. And what we see is God's going to affirm that his timing is always perfect. So you've heard about these bad news, good news stories, or good news, bad news there's a lot of them floating out there. We actually had one of those in our history, and it was way back just after I moved to Michigan in February of 1986. And if you had told me then what we would be going through in the next four and a half years there at Packard Road Baptist Church in Ann Arbor, I would have said, you're crazy. But this is how it would have gone had I been telling the bad news, good news kind of story. And say, hey, some stuff has happened here. Our congregation has grown so large that we're going to need to build a larger sanctuary. And whoever's, whoever I was talking with would say, oh, that's good. I'd say, no, that's bad. It's going to cost a lot of money. They go, oh, that's bad. I'd say, no, that's good. Because our congregation pledged the gold level in our fundraising campaign because we had bronze, silver, and gold. And gold was the highest that we were reaching for. And they pledged that, which means that they're pledging a whole lot of money toward the goal of being able to build that building. And they say, oh, that's good. I say, no, that was bad. Because <laughs> we can't afford to hire all the labor to be done by contractors. Oh, that's bad. No, that's good, actually. Because a team of builders from Texas is going to come up. In fact, more than one team. There are about three different teams. One of them is going to stay for a couple of weeks and get a lot of the work done Another group is going to come and finish what the other team couldn't get done. And then they're going to have a bunch of bricklayers that are going to come on their retirement time and lay every brick in the place for that new building. It's going to save us several hundred thousand dollars. And it would go on and on like that. And as you can see from stories like that, a lot of the things that happen that are really beneficial and that really mean something in this life are kind of filled with ups and downs and good news, bad news stories. And that's certainly going to be the case with Israel. And that's what Gabriel is basically saying to Daniel as Gabriel starts to give some instruction and clarification after Daniel starts his prayer. The truth is, there's a lot of good news, bad news. And uh, Mark Elwell did a great job of sharing some of that stuff with us this morning in our growth encounter. 
and he helped put in context where Daniel's book fits in the history of Israel. So good on you, Mark. I like that. It was really helpful. So let's look real briefly at the outline. We covered those first three items last week, the very specific time of Daniel's prayer. And the reason I think that's important is because it's going to factor into some of the 70 weeks. And I think it's great that we can trust God's word to be so accurate. And it's going to be something that's going to have some of those aha moments as we look into the 70 weeks. And then we looked at Daniel's attitude. He was basically praying as someone who had experienced great serious loss. He prayed in sackcloth and ashes, which is what they would do. They would literally cover themselves with ashes as though they were covered in shame. And he was praying as though Israel had something to be ashamed about, which they did. And then he was confessing, but he confessed two things. He confessed God's righteousness and Israel's sinfulness. For us as modern day believers, we would say, yeah, we're sinful people too. If we're saved by God's grace, then we're sinners saved by grace, but we're still sinful at the core, which is why we need a savior, and which is why Daniel's words to us, even starting way back there, 550-something years prior to Christ's coming, was pointing ahead in time to the solution to our biggest problem. Now today, we're going to look at how God's mercy is starting to be poured out already because Gabriel shows up and starts to answer Daniel's prayer and to give him clarification. And then we're going to look, and this is the fascinating part, at the specific time of God's answer, when it's going to start being answered, and when it's going to come to fruition. So let me start reading the remainder of this chapter, starting at verse 20, and then we're going to look to see how God responded to Daniel's contrite confession, and his petition, and the meaning of the 70 weeks. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill. While I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy sevens, footnote, means weeks, and we're going to unpack what that means from the Hebrew literary style, are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, or the vision and the prophet, and to anoint the most holy place, or another footnote, the most holy one. That will become very important as well. Hang on to that thought. Verse 25, know and understand this, from the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, that's good news already, can't you hear that? It means that when it's going to happen, there is going to be a restoration and a rebuilding, until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. Uh, I know, it sounds very confusing. It's going to be much less confusing in just a few minutes, so hang in there with me. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death. 
important word after. Okay, there's going to be this number of years here, and then there's going to be this other series of sevens. And in the middle of that, something important is going to happen. And this person who's put to death will have nothing or no one. Again, two words. One is in a footnote. We have to explore that today. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. Not going to be a literal flood. It says like a flood. War will continue until the end of this prophetic season. And desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. Sounds cryptic now. It won't be. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> and at the temple or the wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation. A modern translation, the New Living, says a sacrilegious object that causes desecration of that temple and the altar of the temple. Until the end or the fate that is decreed is poured out, some say in the translations poured out on him, but another, and this is important, poured out on the desolate city. And we're going to see why that's important as well. So, phew, Boy, we got a lot to look at, and I'm praying that God is going to guide us through his spirit into a really clear exegesis, and we're going to use our super sleuthing skills, exegetical skills, to come up with a really solid uh, explanation and interpretation of this passage today. Setting heaven in motion, that's an interesting term, isn't it? That as soon as Daniel started to pray, Gabriel said that a word was set in motion. And as I mentioned last week in that opening story about a lady named, named Peggy who was walking some property down near St. Louis, somehow her prayers set the power of heaven in motion. And it was more than 10 years after she started praying before God answered her prayer. And a church was built on that property that she was praying for. Pretty remarkable story. And it parallels so closely what we've seen happening with the property that God made available to us at Living Water as well. So it kind of moved me. In fact, I listened to myself and I, I sound like those uh, sentimental old preachers that start to cry when things touch them. And I, that happened last week. So I apologize for my emotions getting the best of me. But it's touching to me to see how God's hand can still be at work strongly even in today. Well, one of the most memorable events during that time Way back when I first moved to Michigan, I started working at Packard Road Baptist Church, and we had to start expanding. I was a minister of education and music, and I was in charge of putting out the communication information about our building uh, finance campaign. And so we were trying to raise enough money to do that. And as I mentioned, they really pledged big. They pledged for the gold version of our uh, specific um, fundraising goals. And so they were going to be pledging a ton. They were really giving sacrificially so they could make this happen. But I also mentioned that we had to have a lot of help. And so we had these teams coming up from Texas. And in July, a gully washer of a storm showed up. And unfortunately, it showed up at a bad time in the building because we had to take a big, huge triangle of roof off of the old building, which is where the new roof that's coming in at a perpendicular angle was going to be tied into the old building. So here's this gaping hole, and the rain was just dumping down into that hole. So we started praying. 
we didn't know how we should pray, but of course we pray for what we think we need the most. And as Daniel is showing us in his book, sometimes we're praying for what we think we need. And God decides to give us what we really need. And sometimes it's going to take longer than we think it's going to take. But he always gives us what's best and not just what we want. So we circled up on the floor of the new sanctuary, which was concrete, and watched this river of water going down the ramp, hit the wall, splash up, go down to another wall, splash again, and right into my office. <laughs> we were literally with buckets and coffee cans. We were bailing into bigger buckets and carrying that water out and singing, there shall be showers of blessing. <laughs> it was quite a scene, but we gathered up on that floor and started praying, and we were just praying for miracles. We didn't know what else to do, so we're going, okay, God, we've seen you do stuff like this in the Bible, so could you stop the rain, maybe? <laughs> could you just kind of open up a hole in the cloud above us long enough for us to get a roof tied into that old part of the building? Well, a word went out at the moment we lifted our voices in prayer, but he didn't answer right away. In fact, he answered a little bit later in a way that was better than we originally thought. Why is that? Because the insurance company decided that because it was a natural disaster, they're gonna buy us brand new carpet for the hole upstairs in the old building, as well as a new drop ceiling. So we were gonna replace those things anyway because they were getting older, so it saved us money in the long run, and we had all this wonderful new stuff, not only in the new sanctuary, but also in the upstairs of the old building. God sometimes knows what he's doing. <laughs> I have a pastor friend that I have coffee with, and that's one of his phrases that he uses all the time. And of course, he's being facetious, because mm -hmm. we know that God always knows what he's doing, and he knew exactly what he was going to do in that situation. So I make that comparison to say, Daniel didn't necessarily see in his lifetime, the fruition of what heaven had been set in motion to do. But as he was praying, God was going to be revealing to him something that we get to benefit from because we look back in history and see all these wonderful things that he's pointing ahead in history to for something that affects us today. So Gabriel's response is kind of a good news, bad news response. Daniel's vision was about the holy city or up on that holy hill in Jerusalem. And the sanctuary, which is a Hebrew word for, it means house or dwelling of God. That's where God dwelt in their mindset, was there at the temple. So in verses 24 through 27 of Daniel 9, basically Gabriel is saying, and this is kind of a paraphrase, Daniel, I got some good news and I got some bad news for you, bud. First, the good news, your prayers are going to be answered. Yay. Jerusalem and the temple are going to be restored. Yay again. Here's the bad news, though. The city will be rebuilt, but it's going to be done during a time of trouble. Hmm. But there's more good news, though. The promised Messiah will come to that very same city and to that very same temple, which had been rebuilt by the time he shows up. I mean, that's far greater news than Daniel could have even imagined as he was praying, begging God to follow through on his promise to restore Israel. It was kind of, you're getting more than you bargained for kind of an answer. And that's exactly what God did for us in a very small way compared to this. And what he's promising to Daniel is good news for the whole planet. But there's more bad news. Hmm. That same Messiah, the promised anointed one, will have to die near that city, just outside the city gates, in fact, as we see from the New Testament. 
But here's the best news of all. When Messiah dies, he will be the final sacrifice for sins. That's what that verse means when it says he will put an end to sacrifice. He'll be the final sacrifice for sins, and blood won't ever have to be shed again in ritual, ongoing, repetitive sacrifices as they had been doing for years at the temple. The promised Messiah will become the perfect sacrifice, atoning for sin once and for all time. Wow. I mean, that was the best news of all. That's better than anything Daniel could have prayed for. Oh, but there's more bad news. Many would not know the prophecies, or they would ignore them, or worse, they would reject them, even though they had them and knew them. They would reject the atoning sacrifice by rejecting Jesus. And as a result, the temple of Jerusalem will be destroyed once more. Mark Elwell talked a little bit about how Jerusalem was destroyed and how we see a couple of different times, well, several different times where they would turn away from God and God would punish and then they would be drawn back to him again. That was their cyclical habit in Israel. And this is one of the biggies that's coming up there because we know ultimately that the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Now we're going to look at the 77s and this is where I get geeked and I need you to put on your thinking caps and lean a little closer to the computer or your TV screen because this is going to get a little technical, but it's kind of like it was when I was taking calculus in high school. The professor would say, take it all in, let it soak into your brain and keep looking at it because all of a sudden you're gonna have some aha moments. And when you see it, it's gonna be so clear and the answer is gonna be right there for you and you'll be able to do the derivation. So this is not even calculus level stuff. This is simple algebra, okay? <laughs> making a comparison there. It's going to be cool. So hang in there with me. All right. Now let's dive into the 70 weeks. 77s are decreed for your people and your holy city. It says in the first part of verse 24. Now the Hebrew phrase, this is important. 70 weeks of years is the phrase that would be used in this. And a week in this version, that particular word would simply mean seven units of time. So you could have a week of something doesn't necessarily have to be a week filled with days. So because it was weeks of years, it means that the unit of time they're talking about is years. So a week of years equals seven years. Is this making sense now? Okay. 77s then would equal 77-year units or 490 years, quite simply. I took you through that so you'd see where we came up with that. Because if I just said 77s equals 490 years, you might think, Oh, come on now. I'm skeptical about that. But now you know where that comes from. All right. This is part of exegesis. We want, to, we want to make sure we're doing it right so we can have a solid interpretation. Um, we don't get this very often, and I can't hear it from you out there. But just in case you're tracking with me, say, I'm tracking with you. Okay, very good. Good for you. The purposes of this future event. There are some incredible purposes, and I want you to be thinking as I read through them. Who does this sound like? To finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both the vision and the prophet, to anoint the most holy one or place. So what or who do these purposes sound like? Do they remind you a little bit of what Jesus did on the cross? 
the atoning work? Well, they should, <laughs> because that's exactly what he did. And that is why he fulfilled all the purposes of verse 24 in the first century AD on the cross. And then as he rose again, three days later, he rose on Easter, and then 40 days he ascended to be with the Father. There are certain things that are happening here that are just pretty mind-boggling as we think about it. And as we see all these purposes that Christ did for us on the cross, we understand that what Gabriel is telling Daniel is the biggest news of all, and it's far better than Daniel could have prayed. So what about the very last phrase there of verse 24, place or one? You'll see in different translations where it will say, and to anoint the most holy place, or in some it'll say the most holy one. Some of them, like the NIV, will have a footnote that says the most holy one. Well, I've given you three different scriptures that you can cross-reference with to get some ideas about that. Which is it, place or one? The word indeed is often used for the English word place. That would be the one most often translated into English. But it doesn't really seem to fit real neatly into the context of Daniel 9, which gives us some question marks. What lets us know that some other meaning is coming into play here is that the anointing refers to Messiah and not the temple. They're not going to anoint the temple. We know from history that that physical temple, the building in Jerusalem, is going to be destroyed ultimately in 70 AD. So why would they anoint a building that's going to be destroyed? That just doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. And the reason that I don't believe that this is so, that it's not necessarily the physical place, is because of Jesus' own words about the temple. And he spoke those words to some religious leaders who had completely missed the mark about why the temple existed and the kind of worship that God expected from his followers. Jesus had been really upset. This is toward the end of his ministry on earth. And he goes in and he just throws over the tables of the money changers because they had turned this house of prayer into a den of iniquity. These people were gouging, price gouging people. Uh, they were charging huge, huge fees for different kinds of currency exchange because they had a lot of different currencies coming in from different nations coming into Passover and times, special events at the temple when people would have to buy doves and lambs and other sacrifices and they would overcharge for these things and say you can't bring your own dove in there that's not good enough you have to buy our dove they were just gouging the people in huge ways it was so unfair and so awful and jesus had had enough and he turned over those tables well some of these religious leaders were asking him hey who gives you the the authority to act like that and jesus says well i'll show you he says, I'll give you a sign, because they were saying, what sign can you show us that you have that authority? He said, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up again in three days. <laughs> they didn't get it. But we get it now, because we're looking back through history. What was he talking about? His own body. That was the dwelling place of God. Where Jesus was, God was. And he's saying, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. That's exactly what happened. That's what happened when he died on the cross. He rose again in three days. Jesus was pronouncing judgment on those who were abusing the sacrifice, uh, the sacrificial offering rituals back then. And when Jesus walked out of the temple, God walked out of the temple. That was important. So that's why I think it's good for us to see that the word who became flesh and dwelt and made his tabernacle 
his temporary dwelling among men. Jesus is the place as well as the one. So it's both and. One day the Pharisees asked Jesus, when will the kingdom of God come? And Jesus replied to them, the kingdom of God can't be detected by visible signs, like a visible temple. You won't be able to say, here it is, or it's over there. The kingdom of God is already among you. He didn't say within, like some people have tried to abuse that scripture. He says, among you. Well, who was among them? He was. It was Jesus. Jesus was there. And where Jesus is, there is God's presence. And there is God's kingdom. Just before Jesus finished the work on earth, he told his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, there you may be also. Once again, we see that where he is, there is God. If we are where Jesus is, we are in God's presence. That's a part of what helps us grasp what Jesus was trying to get across to them and what we can know for sure today about God's kingdom. So which is it, the anointing uh, of the holy place or of the holy one? Yes, <laughs> it's both, both are true. Where Jesus is, there's God, he is the place, he is also the anointed one, the Messiah. Now, how about the timing of these events? This is more geeky stuff, and I love it. <laughs> the 77s, that 490 years, won't start until the word goes out to start rebuilding Jerusalem. There's going to be this decree that gets made by somebody. And when that happens, that's going to start the clock ticking, the, mess the messianic clock, so to speak. And then we'll see that there's some other important things that have to happen and I gave you a cross-reference if you'd like to see that at some point. By looking back through the clear lens of history, we know that Artaxerxes decreed that Jerusalem would be rebuilt. That's Ezra 7, 11 through 26. That was during the seventh year, again, very specific times listed for us in scripture, the seventh year of Artaxerxes' reign, which puts it at 457 BC. How's that for accuracy? <laughs> Now, Daniel 9.25 is telling us that from the date of Artaxerxes' decree in 457 until the anointed one, the Messiah, comes, there would be seven sevens, or seven weeks of years, plus 62 sevens. The reason for that is that you add both of those together. Somehow, there's sort of this demarcation of the first seven and then the 62. But that only totals 69. There's supposed to be 70 weeks, right? There's only 69. I know there's good reason for that as well. That total is 483 years. Now, all the years and stuff, you don't have to remember that. There won't be a test at the end. It's only to show you that there are so many specifics here for us that we can trust it because it all pans out. And we see that. That's why I'm a pan-millennialist. It's all going to pan out through Christ on the cross. <laughs> that was facetious. Okay. That would pinpoint the Messiah, the anointed one, the anointed prince in verse 25 in some translations, being on earth somewhere around AD 26. Now that fits pretty nicely when Jesus began his earthly ministry, starting with his baptism in the Jordan River by John the Baptist, including his anointing, which is when the Holy Spirit came down and lighted on, on him like a dove. That was an anointing that began his earthly ministry there. 
a lot of scholars, depending on the Jewish calendar or the lunar calendar or the solar calendar, they think that it's right around in that time. So it, we might have to fudge and give or take a couple of years in there, but it's looking like it's fitting pretty closely with these specific events. Not only would the temple of Jerusalem be rebuilt, according to what Gabriel is telling Daniel, but the true temple, the dwelling place of God himself, the word who became flesh and tabernacled or lived temporarily among us before he ascended to be with his father. All this is going to be happening to fulfill everything Gabriel told us in the book of Daniel. That's a lot of stuff for one verse, verse 24. If you could circle verse 24, you could have a month's worth of really good sermons just about that because they all relate to the purposes and the timing of the Messiah. That's a huge verse. <laughs> so who's the other prince mentioned there in verse 26? Because there's some question marks that start to get raised when you're reading through that. It's difficult when we have pronouns, especially translating from Hebrew, which has a different syntax than English, and you start to mix up your, your pronouns. We're going to get into that pretty, pretty uh, detailed in just a minute. Well, who is this other prince in verse 26? It's not the Messiah. It's not Jesus. That wouldn't make sense because his troops, Jesus' troops, are not going to be the ones who are going to come in and destroy the city and the sanctuary. This is not the anointed prince. This is an earthly evil prince. And it's not the Antichrist. Why is that? Because all these things are going to get fulfilled in the first century. And if we're looking ahead to the Antichrist, if we're thinking that this is the prince of darkness or that evil one, uh, the stern-faced man in one of our previous Daniel chapters, then the timing is off for that. So it's not the Antichrist either. And that's going to be difficult news for some of the folks who started to build their theology around these two verses, 26 and 27, way back in the 70s, and wrote books about it and made movies about it. That's going to be tough for them to swallow because they're going to have to start revising some of how they're thinking about it if they get to the same conclusion that I think we're going to get to today. Now, since all the purposes of verse 24 are fulfilled in the first century, we know that this doesn't refer to the prince of darkness. The prince in verse 26 refers to, drum roll please, the Roman emperor, Titus. That fourth uh, empire that we were looking at in some of the other uh, major empires in the dreams and visions of the earlier chapters in Daniel, it's Rome. We're looking at Rome when all these things were going to be happening. We got Antiochus that was revealed, and then we had some other things that were starting to point ahead to many Roman kings or emperors. And then Titus is coming into play right about this time. And Caesar Titus, the emperor of Rome, succeeded his father, Vespasian. And since Titus was the son of a king, what does that make him? Oh, he's a prince. I get it. In AD 70, Roman troops ordered by Titus came into Jerusalem like a flood and destroyed the city and the temple. And the city wasn't destroyed by an actual flood. Some people have really missed the boat. Uh, I hadn't meant to do a pun related to the flood, but they missed the boat about relating the flood pointing ahead to the end of the world. We already have a promise that God's not going to end the world by a flood. The promise of the rainbow. Remember all that stuff? Okay. Now, let's back up just a minute to verse 25, because we need to see some more good news, bad news, all right? Are you with me? If you're with me, say, I'm with you. Good for you. All right. The good news is that Jerusalem and its walls and its temple will be rebuilt. 
that's excellent news. I'm sure Daniel is probably going to be ecstatic about that. Bad news is it's going to be rebuilt in times of trouble. Mm. Yeah, so these people are going to be there in Jerusalem. They're sitting in Jerusalem in a time of trouble. Gabriel will come to Daniel, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. I wonder where the inspiration of that song came from. Anyway, the good news is that Jerusalem's going to get rebuilt, including its walls. Some people, by the way, would say that the decree of King Cyrus, or Cyrus, the way they would pronounce it. Mark, you pronounced it correctly this morning. Good for you. I say Cyrus because I'm an American. But the decree of Cyrus that would go back and start sending the Jews back there, they were going to rebuild the temple, but just the temple. But it was Artaxerxes. He's our guy. Okay, Artaxerxes is the one who's going to have Jerusalem and its walls rebuilt. So that's when we need to start the Messianic clock is from Artaxerxes' decree. Can I get an amen? Let's hear it for Artaxerxes. So the bad news is that this rebuilding of the city and the temple is going to happen during a troubled time. All you have to do to get a picture of these troubled times and what they will look like is to read Nehemiah 4 through 6. Those chapters show you what things are going to be like. It wasn't easy. There was opposition both from outside, the people who are taunting them and saying, ah, we're going to send people in. You can't get this done. And then there was the murmuring and the grumbling going on on the inside as well. It was not easy to get those walls rebuilt, let me tell you. And yet, and yet, good news, bad news. The good news is that despite the opposition, despite the times of trouble that were going on right then, they were able to rebuild those walls in 52 days with God's help. Now, Joy and I have seen those walls because you sent us to Israel a few years ago. And you can see that the lower part of this picture shows some of the earlier walls. That would be the types of walls that they would be rebuilding. The bigger walls in the top part of your screen were later put in there by the Ottoman Empire, and they're much taller. But we were walking sometimes 60 feet above some of the earlier excavations that revealed the original walls. And it wasn't quite as massive as we would see looking at today's walls, but it was still a massive project. And to do that all the way around the city, even though it was a smaller version of that city because the city of David was much smaller in acreage back then, it was a huge task in order to get it done in 52 days. Well, the anointing one, have nothing or have no one. Here's another one of these things that we have to ask. Why the footnotes? Why so many footnotes? You're always with the footnotes. The anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing or in a footnote or no one. Which is it? Again, some more cross references to help us with that. The first part of the verse, verse 26, says that the anointed one will be put to death or cut off in the New English translation and will have nothing. That word also is translated as no one. But in this case, again, it's not either or, but both and. Both are true. We know that soldiers cast lots. It's kind of like throwing dice or maybe rock, paper, scissors to try to see who gets the outer garment, the cloak from Jesus without tearing it. He had nothing. Uh, there's another verse that talked about the foxes and birds have places to lay their heads, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. He had nothing. But we also see that everybody deserted him in the end. Mark 14, 15, they all deserted him at the time when he needed them the most. So he had nothing and he had no one. So it's both. Now let's look at the timing of these events as well. The, the reason I get these details in there about 
the anointed one, is that you need to see that the scripture is still absolutely trustworthy. And that sometimes if you see footnotes and you're thinking, oh, they don't even know how to translate it. Well, sometimes they don't because it's both. <laughs> and if you look sometimes at the amplified version, they'll sometimes include both. So it's always good to read several translations if you have questions. But don't just simply discount scripture because there may be one uh, additional word or slightly different translation. Just compare a bunch of them. They're all fulfilled in Christ anyway, <laughs> which is what we're seeing today. All these things are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So the time when the anointed one will be cut off or killed after a total of 69 sevens or 483 years, sometime after that, that's why we need that extra series of seven because 69 sevens doesn't add up to 70 sevens. And this is about the 70 weeks of years. So we know that all these things are going to be put into play because of Artaxerxes. And then we start to ramp up into the Roman Empire. We can see that Titus, the prince, the earthly prince, starts to come in there. And he, now we need to see some of these pronouns. This is where we get into the pronouns. Have you ever tried to write something for a report in school? And you have two different people and you can both refer to as pronoun he after a while. And you have to catch yourself and go through and edit yourself because you think, oh, I haven't made it clear which he I'm talking about here. And that's very much the case in Hebrew because their syntax is different than, than ours. And I'm going to show you why that's very important in interpreting this in just a moment. How long after? 927 tells us that. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice. What comes in the middle of a seven? It's about three and a half, right? Hmm, okay. Here's where it gets really interesting, folks. Here's where we discover just in Daniel chapter nine, and specifically in verses 26 and 27, something about Jesus Christ that's vital. How and when the covenant was ratified is shown for us here. And we're going to see the abomination of desolation identified and what it's not as well. We are going to see what it is, but we're also going to see just as important what it's not. The covenant, he will confirm or ratify or approve a covenant with many for one seven. Why is it important that we use that word confirm or ratify? Because that's the form of the Hebrew word that's used in this statement. There are two different ways that you can use that word. One of them that's very slightly different than the other means to cut a covenant. That means to start something that hasn't been started yet. And this one means to confirm or ratify or approve a covenant that has already been begun and that helps us understand that that's what Christ is doing for us because it was already begun earlier in the scriptures. Now, the earthly prince. Caesar Titus is the one who sets up an abomination of desolation. As I started reading through this the first time, I had a lot of questions. And you may have questions right now, too. But I guarantee you that in just a few slides, I'm going to show you something that's going to be mind-blowing. And it's going to pull all the pieces together for you. And you're going to go... So get ready for it, all right? Hang in there. The end that is decreed is the destruction of Jerusalem. Okay? Hold on to these thoughts here. This is all in verse 27. Until the end that is decreed is poured out on the desolated city. That is the footnote that shows us that even though it looks like it could be referring to a person, that's the important thing that we need to remember. It's going to be poured out on the desolate city. Now, let me tell you a little something about exegesis here. It is a critical analysis for the purpose of accurate interpretation. That's what exegesis is. 
And we have some wonderful exegetical tools at our disposal. There's text. I mentioned these first three often at the very beginning of our study through Daniel. There's text. There's context. How does it fit in with the other verses above and below it? And also with perhaps a chapter that's leading up to it. And then the new text, which we have that unlocks that scroll that was sealed, the new text that sheds so much light on these Old Testament prophecies. So we have the New Testament. And today we have two more of these wonderful tools, which is language, the Hebrew language and why that's so important, including things like ratify versus cut a covenant. And then the style of the writing, because especially in the Hebrew writing, there were so many things like chiasm, which we learned a few weeks ago. And today we're going to see about this parallelism, all very important to get to the correct interpretation. Are you with me? All right, very good. Verse 26, after the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. We know that refers to Jesus. That's the Messiah. The people of the ruler, who's the ruler? Titus, who will come, will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Then the end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. Aha. Hebrew parallelism. This is where I get really geeked because the parallelism is going to make this come alive for you. All right. In parallelism, we can see that there are two verses, each with an A and a B section. The A in the first verse refers to the same person as the A in the second verse. Are you tracking with me? The B in the first verse refers to the same person as the B in the second verse. That was a device in literature that was very common back in the Hebrew way of writing. And we need to know that if we're going to interpret this correctly, because if we look at simply a word for word or thought for thought translation into English, we start messing up our pronouns. And it's real easy for us to miss this. And a lot of people have. A equals Messiah. B equals Titus. Got it? All right. Now, look at this. <laughs> oh, this is what gets so exciting to me. I'm a visual person, so I thought, I'm going to put these side by side. I'm going to move the first part of verse 27 up next to the first part of verse 26 and see if it sounds like they're referring to the same person. Because it's okay for somebody to just tell me about it, but I want to see it. So let me read these, and you can read along with me here. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one, who is that? It's Jesus, the Messiah. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing and no one. He will confirm a covenant, not cut a covenant, but confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. There were 69 sevens. Now we're in the 70th seventh. And in the middle of that, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. Yes, that sounds very much like Christ. Of course it does, because it is. The Hebrew language, though, is also important, because I mentioned this about cut a covenant versus to ratify a covenant. Here's a strange thing that was happening back several years ago. Back when I was in junior high school, I know some of you think that's a long time ago, because it is. There were some popular writers who were starting to say that somehow in the future, there was going to be somebody who would start to make nicey-nice with Israel and they would pretend to be Israel's friend. And then suddenly in the middle of a seven year period, this person who was supposed to be the really nice Dr. Jekyll was gonna go all Mr. Hyde on him 
and he was going to turn mean and become Mr. Meaniehead against Israel, and he was going to put an end to their sacrifice and their sacrificial system, and that was going to be the Antichrist, and they were really geeked about that because they were using these verses to point to that, but in saying to cut a covenant, they were going to make some sort of a, an agreement with these folks, with many people. You don't make a covenant with many Jews. You do it with a whole nation. And so this word cut a covenant needs to be, it's very, it's vital. You need to say, no, there's not a cut, cut a covenant situation. It's going to ratify a covenant. And that can only happen when that person in this verse is the Messiah. He is ratifying. He is affirming the covenant that God put already in place so that then he's going to be finally putting his stamp of approval on it so that everybody who is open to him and who calls upon his name will be saved and they'll become ushered in as part of his family. See why the language is so important here? Mm -hmm. The language and the style are both really important in getting to the right thing. Now, this is, oh, this is so good. Can't you get excited about this when you see the rest of these things too? Now, if you're thinking about Titus as the guy in red, he's the prince of earth, the early ruler there, not the one who's the Antichrist in later times, but the one who's going to come into this Roman occupation, the people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end. The desolations have been decreed. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end is decreed, is poured out on the desolate city. Now it starts to really come together. You can see that parallelism so much more clear this way. And when I did that, boom, my brain exploded. And I came down and I think I, I was pretty geeked because Callie said, how many cups of coffee have you had today? <laughs> I was very geeked. Jesus' words about 70 AD. This is, again, pretty mind-blowing, but it's important. Jesus said this while he was alive on earth, and he knew what was coming. And it wasn't that many years after he had been crucified and would rise again. So he's giving a prophetic word as well as he's alive on earth. So when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, <laughs> isn't that amazing that Jesus is referring us right back to what we're studying right now? Let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And there are lots of mountains and hills around there, some with caves, as we've looked at. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. He means get down those stairwells on the outside and the back's part of your houses and flee to the mountains as quickly as you can. Some people miss that, unfortunately. And some people back in the 70s who wrote books about that were urging people not to have children. Because they were afraid that when the Antichrist came, and it could come at any time because people have mispredicted that, that pregnant women were going to be finding themselves in terrible situations, according to Jesus' words about that. Jesus is talking about something that would happen in just a few years from when he was alive. This verse is not talking about farther out into the future. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not play, take place in winter or on the Sabbath. People built their whole theology around an obscure passage without the knowledge of Hebrew parallelism and without the correct Hebrew word for ratify 
and they used the word cut and they came up with a whole system of theology and then had to start backing it up by putting all their fingers in the holes in the dikes by using other scriptures inappropriately to build themselves up into their system. And then they mispredicted things and shot themselves in the foot and caused people to say, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> God's word is so cohesive if we use the right exegetical tools at our disposal and we can see that God wants us to know that we can absolutely trust in his word because it is going to come to fruition. He has won every battle he's ever predicted that he would win, and he's going to win the battle at the end, which by a spoken word will put an end to that real antichrist once and for all time when that happens. But this is not talking about that time. The summary of AD 70. I think it's important for us to see that. And I would like to read for you just a real summary. This is paraphrased, and this comes from the writing of the historian Josephus. The Jews rebelled against the Romans in AD 66. War continued for the next four years. The Jews won a partial victory in AD 70, but that small victory was just kind of like throwing a rock at a hornet's nest. It stirred them up big time. It only heightened the resolve of the Roman emperor who vowed to do whatever it would take to win against the Jews. Joy and I saw evidence of that because there was that last stand up on Masada where there was a group of people there. And the Roman emperor besieged that place for three years. He said, I don't care how many soldiers it takes. I don't care how long it takes. Build a ramp, an earthen ramp. It took them three years to finally get enough soldiers so they could break in there. And by the time they got in there, they had all committed suicide because they said, we're not going to allow ourselves to be subjected to them. We're going to take our own lives. It was a tragic event. So we saw that. We saw what this was culminating in and all this was taking place leading right up to 70 AD. So Vespasian had begun the campaign against Israel, but he was recalled to Rome. So his son, the prince, Titus, Caesar, continued the task. He and his people, the Roman army, entered Jerusalem at the most crowded time. This is what's so awful, because Jesus was predicting a lot of this stuff. It was during Passover. Horrific reports were spread abroad all throughout, and this is what Josephus writes about. The reports were spread abroad that there were up to 600,000 Jews slaughtered in the streets because they didn't heed the words of Jesus. They didn't flee to the hills. They missed it. You think it's important for us to heed the words of scripture, especially those things that are prophesying something that would cause us to get right with the Messiah so that when the time does come, that there may be a real tribulation, one far greater than we've ever known, far greater than some little pandemic. I think the pandemic will be a drop in the bucket compared to the real tribulation. If some of the people are right about the Christians living through either a part of or all of the tribulation, man, we got to be ready. <laughs> so that's a little parenthetical statement there. I'm just saying it was important for people to see and heed, and they didn't. And I think it's very important for us to heed the words of Scripture and to place our faith in Jesus Christ, because he's the one who will seal our eternity. And no matter what happens in the future, we'll be with him because he is the place, and he's the one where God is, and we need to be with him. So he, the people, the Roman army, besieged these people, over 600,000 people, or up to 600,000 people, according to the historian, were slaughtered. 
the remnant of Jews who weren't killed continued the resistance for about 60 more years. The last stand of the Jews took place at Masada, which I've just told you about. That's when they finally came in, and in AD 132, they just plowed Jerusalem under, including the Temple Mount. And that's when, you ready for this one? Another drum roll. They erected the altar to Jupiter in the temple on the Temple Mount. The abomination of desolation, the sacrilegious object that desecrated the temple. That's the identity of the abomination of desolation. Some of the people who have written about this that were very popular were saying that the Antichrist is the abomination of desolation. I don't believe so. I think it's very clear through this and through our exegetical lenses and our super sleuthing that the abomination of desolation was the statue of Jupiter. So now we're going to see how God's timing is perfect. Absolutely perfect. Daniel 9 is a prophecy about the first coming of Christ, showing that he would die for the sins of many. That's another important word. It's not universalism. He's not dying for every person on the planet. He's dying for everybody who will call upon the name of the Lord, as it says in the New Testament. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But that means that we, who are believers, need to share that good news with as many as possible, because it's God's desire that everybody would turn to him, but we need to get the word out. And we can trust that God, who is both holy and just and merciful, will make sure that everybody has a chance to hear one way or the other. He's that kind of God. So you see in Romans 5, 6, at just the right time, just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. At just the right time in history, in accordance with Gabriel's words, the word went out to rebuild Jerusalem and its walls and its temple, and that set the messianic clock in motion. And then in the middle of that final set of sevens, the anointed one ratified or affirmed the covenant of grace and did away with the need for additional ongoing repetitive ritual sacrifices, as had been the Jewish customs. He ushered in a season in which everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, Romans 10, 13. And everybody who does that will know true peace, not this peace, peace that's being offered on the world today. Political people will constantly say, oh, we're going to usher in a season of peace. Don't you believe it? <laughs> the only true peace that can be found is going to be the peace that comes that passes all human understanding. And that's the peace in our hearts as we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior for eternity. Even though we know that the church is going to continue to go through trials and probably tribulation, I don't know about the major tribulation or not. All that is still speculative. We'll see. But there will be trials and there will be different levels of tribulation, whether there's the small one, small T, or the big T. But we know that everybody who places their faith in Jesus Christ will have what they need to stand firm till the end. And they're going to have Christ for eternity. I feel like there's a lot of spiritual warfare going on even amongst Christians today. Our world is rife with spiritual warfare. So I'm glad for us to be studying the book of Daniel right now in this season of our world's history and in America's history, because I think it shows me that we can have a strong, faithful faith 
in the God who's still sovereign and whose timing is always perfect. Let me just offer this one final word of invitation. If you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, wouldn't you like to do so? Is there any reason why you wouldn't want what he has to offer? I don't think there's anybody else you can turn to. Nothing else that you can turn to who can give you what Christ offers. Let's pray together. Father, I do pray that everyone who hears this might be drawn to you through the Holy Spirit and that they would call out to you and say, Jesus, I need you. I want you to be the Lord of my life. Yes, I want to follow you for eternity, no matter what kind of trials we experience on earth, because then I know that you'll be with me through your Holy Spirit, through the trial. And I'll have a sense of purpose, a sense of Holy Spirit-empowered chutzpah to go through anything. I just know that you can do this, Lord. And I thank you for that. I thank you for your forgiveness. I thank you for what Christ did for me on the cross, because I know that I could never pay the penalty of sin on my own. And so thank you for paying that penalty for me on my behalf. And now fill me with your Holy Spirit, seal the deal, so to speak, and help me, as you promised that you would, by revealing all of your truth through scripture. I want your word to come alive in my life so that I can be transformed in my mind by the word that's given to us. And I thank you that your word is powerful and that it's constantly changing me so I can become more and more like Christ. Thank you for doing all that. In the name of Jesus, I pray.